Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, we ask that you subscribe and leave favorable reviews. Our guest today is Professor Brian Kaplan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's the author of several books, uh, including the one we're going to be discussing today, which is The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money, newly out in paperback. Professor Kaplan, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. So what is the case against education? I assume it's not that reading is bad or uh, math is bad, anything like that. Uh, No, Uh, the case against education is this. Most of what students study in school, they never use after the final exam and predictably so. Uh, which then raises the puzzle, well, why is education so lucrative in the job market if most of what you're learning is so irrelevant in real life? And my story is that studying and excelling in areas that are not practical can still impress employers. It's still a way of convincing employers that you are a worthwhile employee. The problem is that if everyone spends time trying to convince employers they're worthwhile, if they haven't learned useful skills, this can't actually raise the productivity of the economy. And so really what I say is education is quite redistributive. A lot of what's going on in school is that you are making yourself look good compared to other people. And the result is that we need more and more degrees just to get the same jobs that our parents or grandparents could have gotten with far less. This is what is known as the signaling model of education, as I understand it. Correct. And uh, it is to be distinguished both from the typical standard view of education, which is you're going to get useful knowledge and skills. Yep, human capital. Right. And also distinguished from a kind of reverse causation theory you hear out there that, well, you know, the people people who go to college, say, who have college degrees make a lot more money, but that's just because they're really on the game. They would have done fine regardless, but, you know, are capable people just like going to college, I guess. Uh, Yeah, or or they come from rich families and their family connections are the key. You know, there's... There's so many of uh, really, uh, these reverse causality stories, but yeah, they all come down to the same idea where saying, look, uh, like Harvard is like ski trips. Ski trips don't make you rich. Harvard doesn't make you rich is what some people have said. Okay. So what, and I should say just to uh, properly caveat all this is that you do not claim that signaling explains uh, 100% of the extra income that a person is expected to receive from getting a a college degree. Some part of that is either actually learning useful information and or the reverse causation part of it, I believe. Is that that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the world is complicated. Everything is going on simultaneously. And yes, you do learn many useful things in school. I mean, it goes on for 13 or 17 or 21 years. So it would be amazing if you didn't learn anything useful during all those decades. But yeah, I'd say most of the reason why education raises your income is from getting the stamp on your forehead saying this person finished high school, finished college, has an engineering degree from MIT. Say that's where most of the payoff is coming from. Although, of course, you do learn reading, writing, some math, and maybe even some other useful things during all those many years where most of the time you're just wasting it, but not entirely. What's the origin of this? Is this just inherent to the public education system? Or is this something that's gotten worse in recent years? 
right? What I say is the data isn't good enough to say with any confidence, but you know, like you know, my general view is that as long as education has been around, it's been this way, right? So you know, like you can go back to the 19th century and look at the typical college education back then, right? And it's you know, Greek and Latin. Greek and Latin is, is a huge part of the curriculum then. So, I mean, compared to that, you're just tempting to say, wow, we've re we're really improved. Now we fail to teach living languages to students <laughs> instead of failing to teach dead languages to them. So, you know, if you go back you know, more hundreds of years, a lot of what's going on is just theology, which, I mean, suppose if you have a very particular you know, religious view, you'll think that was really useful information. But I doubt many people, even regular churchgoers, will think that scholastic philosophy is actually important for any practical thing, even getting into heaven. So, yeah, I mean, I think this just goes back for as long as we have, as education has been around. What is the evidence in favor of signaling being really important as opposed to uh, these other possible models of education? Uh, right. So, I mean, it's you know, best just to start with you know, comparing signaling to the regular human capital view, which says that you know, you know, human capital says that education pays because you learn lots of useful skills in, in school, which you then use on the job. And signaling says, no, 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 it's it's much more about jumping through a bunch of hoops to impress employers, and then employers will teach you what you actually need to do. Now, both of these stories predict that education will raise income. So you can't just go and look at the income of people with different degrees and say, ah, well, signaling's wrong because it does raise income. Signaling says it raises income. If you want to go and distinguish these two stories, what you have to do is really open up the black box and see what do people study? What do they actually learn? Right? So uh, in the book, I actually try to find evidence on what adults actually know about anything, right? Because if you go and test people at the, uh, on the day of the final exam, that isn't really a good test of how much they have durably learned, right? Because employers, like in the human capital story, they aren't paying you for skills you had 20 years ago. They're paying you for skills you have now, right? Uh, what I do is I track down studies of just how much adults know about various subjects and you know, literacy and numeracy. It's disappointingly low, but at least it's something. But then for basically every other subject that is taught in school, the knowledge of the typical American adult is basically zero, right? So civics, history, science, foreign language, if you just give them a test of that, they essentially know as close to zero as you can imagine. It's really just a rounding error. And yet they spent years studying it. And if you didn't do it, it would be hard for you to go and get a job. So anyway, so that's a, you know, a lot of the evidence that I have is I just look at what people know. I also just look at what people study. If you just see how much time people spend on subjects that just aren't very relevant in the real world, then and it's, it makes a lot of sense uh, in the signaling model. It doesn't make much sense in human capital. Uh, now, on the question of how do you distinguish uh, reverse causation stories from the other stories, again, that's one where insofar as reverse causation is right, then human capital and signaling are both wrong. And again, that's one where what you really want to do is get some measures of people's ability or other advantages before they started school, and then see whether if you compare people who didn't have those advantages to those who did, whether actually that will account for the difference. So basically, if you go and look at people, like get, for example, an IQ's test score at seven, if you see that once you statistically adjust for that, that there's no payoff for college, then that would say, ah, college is really just, it's really just reverse causation because smart people go to college. Now, again, when you're doing real statistics, of course, you're almost never going to find that any one story is the whole truth. Instead, what you really do with statistics is try to get a breakdown. How much of it is reverse causation? How much is signaling? How much is human capital? 
So what I you know, wind up saying in the book is that you know, a reasonable estimate is that reverse causation explains a little bit less than half of the apparent effect of education on earnings. And then for the remaining part, for the true part, I say that that's about 80% signaling and about 20% human capital. Again, although I say, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here. So, so I do have a question. The difference between signaling and reverse causation, on one level, it's kind of intuitive. But when I try and think about, you know, in the signaling model, what are you, what are you signaling to employers? Presumably, it's some sort of ability. Right. Great question. So it's basically the difference between if you're smart and you don't go to school, will the labor market identify your ability and reward you or not? Right. So there's been you know, like, you know, quite a bit of work on the question of suppose that you are very smart and you don't go to college. So what happens to your earnings? So people have studied this exact question. And the answer is that when you get your first job your first, you know, like, that you get out of high school, if you don't go to college, smart people don't seem to make any more money at all than people of average intelligence at first. Then as time goes on, it is true that smarter people get better raises, but it takes at least 10 years to get to where you would have been and probably actually quite a bit longer. So that's really the difference between reverse causation and signaling. Reverse causation says that if you're smart, but you don't get the signal, you don't get the money. And signaling says that if you're smart and you get the signal, you get the money. And actually signaling also says that if you get a fake degree, or like you sneak your way into Harvard and you sneak your way into good grades, says that a not-so-smart person who has the Harvard diploma will still get a big payoff for that. So that's really the difference. Yeah, and I want to come back to that later because I have some questions about that. But the fact that a lot of education, the subject matter, doesn't seem to be particularly relevant after the final, I think, speaking for myself, I think a lot of people who remember back to school, that seems pretty plausible. Uh, I remember. You know, when I was in law school, to give an example, we had to take a year-long civil procedure course, right, to learn about civil procedure. At the end of the civil procedure course, I was not actually, you didn't know how to actually file a case uh, if you were to go to court. But we yep. did spend six weeks on a single case from the, uh, I think it was the 19th century, called Pranoyer versus Neff, about <laughs> jurisdiction. And at the end of the six weeks, we learned that the case had been overruled. <laughs> so, 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 you know, there's definitely a lot of material that you look back and you think, why, why did we learn that? My wife did securities law in the 1990s in law school. And in the 1990s, they taught the law of the 70s. Right. And then when she got a job, they said, all right, do not use anything you learn because it's quite likely to be wrong. Like, don't think you know something. You do. Like, the first thing we need to tell you is you don't like what you learned is not actually usable. You need to learn the current law. Right. Yeah. Now practice to learn what to use what you learned in school. That, that's right. Yeah. Now, uh, however, what the professors and everyone uh, always used to say, which I think, you know, th there's some plausibility to this. They would say, well, uh, the point of your first year of law school or law school is you were learning to think like a lawyer, right? So there's some, some broader thinking skills or whatnot that you learn and I guess, you know, that's kind of perhaps more generalizable in terms of education, perhaps even if the specific material about, you know, the Gilded Age and history or whatever, even if that fades, you've learned some sort of critical thinking skills or writing skills or, or something that 
would be more generalizable uh, and useful going forward. So uh, what's wrong with that? Uh, so I don't know of any specific research on learning how to think like a lawyer, but there's a lot of research on learning how to think in general, right? Uh, this is, of course, an excuse that teachers all over the place, probably for hundreds of years, have been making their students saying, well, what I'm saying may not seem relevant, but you're learning, always learning how to think. Anyway, so educational psychologists have been testing these learning how to think theories for about 100 years. They are initially very sympathetic to the idea of learning how to think. And yet virtually everyone that I've ever read who has looked at the data in educational psychology has come away shell-shocked and said, we can't find this effect. It seems to be wishful thinking. It's not true that people are learning anything noticeable in the way of learning how to think in school. Instead, what it appears is that if you're lucky, they learn the exact thing you're teaching them, and usually they don't even learn that. Now, how can this be, right? Uh, well, you know, like, like what kind of evidence? Well, you know, some of this is, exper is experimental, where they'll go and teach people some facts that are logically relevant to solving a problem, and then they'll see whether the people that have learned those facts are better at solving the problems than the people who, uh, who did not. And normally, people are just terrible at applying what they learned in one context to another. People apply knowledge in a very superficial way, rather than like based upon deep understanding. And you know, and then you know, you know, there's also work where people have actually seen like do people actually get better at solving reasoning problems over time when they spend more time in school? And there, what you see is that people with more education are better at reasoning, but they don't get better at reasoning during their time in school. So it looks very much like that's just selection. Uh, what people do get better at is very specific things they train in. So for example, chemistry students get better at chemistry. Uh, econ students get better at doing econ problems. So that's, for, that's true. But I mean, it really comes down to the way that people actually get good at their jobs is learning by doing, right? Getting very specific practice. And again, this is something where when you actually look at specific jobs, this is this is crucial. So, for example, if you want someone to be, a, if you want to train someone to be a pilot, no pilot school on earth sends you to learn trigonometry, <laughs> right? Logically speaking, trigonometry it makes perfect sense that it would actually be good for training pilots, but no one can actually, or at least for, you know, like virtually no one on earth can you can actually use trigonometry to figure out how to fly a plane. Instead, what you do is forget trigonometry, put them in the flight simulator. And every time that they crash the plane, the flight simulator blows up and like, don't do what you just did again. Right. And then after logging a lot of time in the flight simulator, then you get in a real plane with a flight instructor and they correct you more and say, look, you almost killed us. And that's the way that people get good at that. It's the way people get good at really, uh, really anything. So, I mean, you know, you probably heard about the 10,000 hour rule. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, talks about it. Uh, now, to be fair to Gladwell, he accurately summarizes an inaccurate summary of the research, right? All right. So there is indeed one, probably the most famous researcher on the science of expertise, who really does say that anyone can become a world-class expert if they, if they put 10,000 hours of deliberate practice into the subject. As far as I can tell, he's the only expert who believes this. He's sort of, I think he's famous because he's popularized this. But there's a bunch of other people saying, well, look, of course, practice matters a lot, but a lot of other things matter too. Like when, at what age did you start practicing? That's really important. And how smart are you? That matters too. But nevertheless, the, what, what you can get out of all this work is that all, all of the experts on expertise agree that it's really important to practice and not to practice something vague like reasoning. You need to practice the exact thing that you want to do put a lot of hours in, a lot of variation on the themes of the very skill that you want to become an expert at. And that's how people get good at their jobs. 
Right? So the slogan that I like is that people like to think about education as being training. And I say, no, it's not really training generally. Rather, it is a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. Okay, so let's assume that there is quite a bit of signaling in terms of what education is all about. That seems pretty wasteful, as you say in your Mm -hmm. book, Uh, A, because the government spends a lot of money on education, but then B, you know, individuals, I mean, you're talking about four or five years of your life, Mm -hmm. college, uh, perhaps more for graduate school, and then, you know, even some for high school and all sorts of money and resources. If there were some way to get around that waste or cut through it, that could be a potentially pretty big advantage to society. Is there a way around this? Or do you think it the system is just so entrenched that uh, there's not much we can do about it? It depends upon what you mean by is there something we can do about it? If we equals the government, then I think there's definitely something government can do about it, which is spend less money. Uh, so you know, there's been quite a bit of work, usually done by people that want there to be more education, who say that if government spends more on education, then people get more. And this work seems very solid to me. And I say that we can reverse this reasoning and say that if spending more will get a more a more on education leads to more education happening, spending less will lead to less happening. And that's a good thing, right? Because I mean, my whole story really comes down to this. The reason why we have so much credential inflation, the reason why you need so many degrees to get jobs that are so menial is because the competition has so much education, right? The reason why you need a lot more education to get a job as a, as a waiter at a fancy restaurant than your dad or grandfather did is because educational credentials are so much more prevalent now than they used to be. So if we were to go and cut down our credentials, this would have the opposite effect. We could get credential deflation. We could go back to a world where you can get a good job without going to college, Right. So that is my main proposal. And if you're talking about what we can do, as in what can the government do, then I say that there's actually something really easy to spend less money. Right. And that kills, uh, you know, it kills many, many birds with that one stone because, of course, saving money does a lot of other great things too. Right. But anyway, so I say that's something that can totally be done. In terms of is there room for internet startups or other kinds of educational innovation or disruption to go and change the system? Uh, my view is that there's a little bit of room, but I, I think it's very unlikely there's going to be any kind of a technology-driven revolution without a change in government policy. But again, my main story here is that a lot of what you are signaling in school, it's not just being smart. It's not just being hardworking. A lot of what you're signaling is that you're conformist. And it's very hard to come up with an, a new kind of conformity signaling. It's like it'd be very hard to say, we're going to replace the suit with the kimono. Right? Like, who's going to go first? The first person that tries something new doesn't show that they're conformist. They show that they're nonconformist. So, really, what I say is there's a catch 22 with conformity signaling. Once a certain thing is the standard thing to do to show that you are a, a conforming member of our society, it's really hard to come up with another way, another way of doing the same thing because who are the first people in line to want to do something, to want to do something unconventional? The first people who want to, sh- to, want to signal conformity in a new way. Say those people are generally going to be nonconformists, and you know, that's the problem. But again, so I mean, I, in my book, I call this locked-in syndrome. So I do think that there is a lot of lock-in. Although I think there's very little doubt that if the money were to go down drastically, then this would lead to a, a big reduction in the amount of time that we waste in school. Okay, so uh, I think a, a lot of people would summarize uh, the, your perspective or the book's perspective as being. Uh, 
you know, somehow uh, uh, right wing or, uh, you know, libertarian, certainly because of the, uh, uh, you know, cutting education funding. I wanted to ask about a couple of uh, possible left wing implications of Mm -hmm. your views. Uh, First, with regard to affirmative action, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a body of work theory out there that affirmative action is counterproductive because of what's known as mismatch, where you take students, you know, you're admitting uh, minority students to schools that are beyond their capacity or otherwise, you know, it's causing problems for them. Given the signaling model, there's a lot of reasons why someone might oppose affirmative action, some of which have nothing to do with that. But it, just in terms of whether, whether it would work or not, uh, w- when the signaling model suggests that, yeah, affirmative action work, because what really matters is getting the diploma, it uh, doesn't matter if you learn anything or up to the work or anything like that. So uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I would say is that if the signaling model is right, then affirmative action is good for the students that you let in as long as they finish. Right. That doesn't really actually address the mismatch concern about finishing. Because there is a separate body of work which says that most of the benefit from college does indeed come from finishing. So essentially, you want to get into the highest school that you can graduate from. (laughs) So then, you know that what I say that means is like if you if like get into like 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 you know like one tier better than you really deserve to get into, then probably that's going to be advantageous for you. But if you get in like several tiers better than, than, than you're qualified for, then probably bad for you because you're just not – you're going to walk away with nothing. But yeah, I mean like basically like, you know, like if the idea of affirmative action is sort of just smuggle unqualified students in to a school where – and then make and then make employers confused about, what, about who deserves to be there and who doesn't, then it can totally work, right? So in that, in that sense, uh, it would have basically the same effect as successfully cheating on your test that you will come out as a straight-A student even though you haven't learned anything. Right, you know, it's good for you because you, know, you look good in employers' eyes, right? But um, you, know, you know, at the same time, of course, uh, this means that it's bad for the other students who's uh, you're, you're diluting the value of it. Now, the last thing to remember is that if employers can figure out that you probably got affirmative action, then this actually does reinforce this other common criticism of affirmative action, which is that it creates a stigma towards the for, uh, for minority students that deserve to get in on their merits. So that's actually another signaling type problem where it says that, yes, it's good for the people that couldn't have gotten in on their merits, but it's bad for the ones that could have gotten in on their merits because employers will make an inference based upon your, based upon your observable characteristics about whether or not you did indeed get in on your merits or not. So, so sort of short answer, it's complicated, but maybe. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, so somewhat uh, related to that, in, so in New York City, there is a current controversy because the mayor, Bill de Blasio, wants to change. There, there are a number of highly selective public high schools in uh, New York City, Stuyvesant and other things, where to get in, uh, you basically you take a, a, a test and the highest scores get into the school. Very prestigious school. Lots of successful people come out of there. But the racial mix of the school it does not match that of the general population. It's actually mostly Asian. But in any event, this, so this has caused some consternation, and the, the mayor is trying to get it so that they're not allowed to admit based on test scores. However, if the signaling model is right, then A, it would seem that it really wouldn't matter for the individual outcomes of the students, whether they're going to one school or another, and B, 
might actually be good because all the time that they are spending trying to do better on the test is kind of it's kind of wasted. It's a kind of an arms race against other students. Uh, it might be put to more you know productive uses. What to the extent that teenagers can do anything productive with their time. So, I mean, what is your take on that? So, my memory is that all three of those schools are science, technology, engineering, math oriented. Is that right? I believe that's right. Right. So, I would say that those are ones where the signaling share is probably lower than in the rest of the country. So, I'll. That's you know, one important difference to keep in mind is that you know, that's you know, I think it's more likely they're teaching useful skills there. Um, you know, this concern about you know, people just putting a ton of energy into test prep, that's true. Although, of course, you know, like, like any, you know, any metric at all that you use will encourage people to put effort into that metric. So as to whether the effort put into the admissions test for those schools is worse than the effort put into you know, doing sports or musical instruments or other things, uh, I don't know. Uh, and then on the question of could it really be these schools are good for kids uh, if the signaling model is right? I mean, like in terms of the individual, like of like course, it can be very good for you to get into a place where you get a super, a super sharp signal, right? In terms of whether it actually is good for society to have schools like this, again, that really comes down to, you know, is the level of actual human capital training going on in these STEM schools unusually high? I suspect that it is actually. And so, you know, like they are getting a benefit from being around other very sciencey peers that are the future of their fields. I tend, you know, so again, I tend to think that you know, like those special schools are a bit different. But again, maybe I'm actually selling my own theory short, and you know, like, like there like really isn't, isn't uh, very much difference. Again, of course, I mean, here's the thing: is if those schools didn't actually have an effect on your future, then there'd be no point of affirmative action either, right? Because then you're just bending the rules to give someone something that doesn't actually help them in the future. So yeah, that's fair. Although uh, going to a good high school seems mainly to count as an advantage, perhaps to getting into college as opposed to something else. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my feeling is that the main benefit uh, to being a better high school is whether you learn more and better math, which then opens up lots of doors if you've got that. Because it's so hard to catch up in math if you show up in college and you don't know calculus. So conservatives like to complain about political correctness, and they claim that public schools and colleges are biased and unfair to conservatives. But if what you're saying is correct, if students don't really retain much of anything that they've been taught in school and maybe even in college, does that really even matter? Uh, do they have any? Is there any lasting effect on any bias against conservatism, conservative values? Um, if students are retaining so little of what they're being taught in school. Yeah, and I actually have a chapter where I say mostly that. So there is evidence on this. Uh, you know, like, like to what extent does you know, getting more education change your political views? And what I'd say is that the overall results are much smaller than what most people think. Like, like if you just average over the last 50 years or so, it's not even clear that education makes people more democratic, much less, much more democratic in the capital D partisan sense. Then when you go and look at specific issue views, there you'll see a little bit more. But again, it's actually pretty surprising because what you really see is that on average, the more time you spend in school adjusting for a lot of other traits, you do become more socially liberal, but you also become more economically conservative. Right. And then there's the puzzle, like, why would that be? Like, how many economically conservative professors could students possibly be exposed to? And since my experience is basically none. So I'd say that probably a lot of what's going on is just that it's a peer effect. And uh, the, the interesting thing about peer effects is that not everybody can get one. Right. <laughs> right. So if everyone is getting a peer effect, no one is. 
All right. So, you know, like in my book, I compare this to like you might you might say if you like you imagine you admit a non-Mormon to Brigham Young University. All right. Probably the odds that they're going to become a Mormon shoot up quite a bit. But if Brigham Young admitted everyone, then Brigham Young would cease to be a Mormon school and then the pure effect would go away. So anyway, I will say, well, actually, what I speculate on in the book is that really what college does is it is it socially isolates socially liberal, economically conservative people from the rest of the population. And as a result, this means that educated people have a lot of pressure to become more socially liberal, more economically conservative. But on the other hand, less educated people uh, get more get social pressure to do the opposite, to become more socially conservative and more economically liberal. And this sounds to me a lot like the 2016 election, where you can see this big division between high and low education people, as well as in the you know the rhetoric of the candidates. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. And you know, by the way, the same thing goes for whether schools successfully secularize their students. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, like you might think that schools are trying to turn students, if not into atheists, then just into people that are not very into religion. And yet, there's you know, very little evidence uh, in favor of that. In fact. You know, the best that we can see is that, you know, education might make you a little bit more theologically un- irreligious, but it also makes you behaviorally more religious. So that is, you know, the more time you spend in school, it seems like the less likely you are to say you believe in God, but the more likely you are to actually go to church, mm. right? And if there's any, if this is part of a conspiracy, <laughs> I'd like to meet the conspirators. Like, who are these people who want people to have less belief, less religious belief, but more religious action? To me, a lot of this looks like, you know, the appear effects and other things going on. I will say that as a college professor, you know, the like ideological you know, intolerance on campus affects me more than most people. But I always try to draw a distinction between what affects me personally and what's a big deal. Right now, like my toe hurting affects me a lot, but I don't think this is, it means that my toe is an issue of great social concern, right? And I see that, you know, concern about political correctness on campus, though it's, you know, affects a lot more people than my toe. Still, I think it'll affect so far fewer people in the same malaria. And yet the number of Facebook stories about political correctness on campus that I see shared is about a hundred times as many as for malaria. Okay, so I want to talk about how this all relates to homeschooling. My wife was a public school and private school teacher before we had children. And then when our boys reached school age, she decided that she wanted to homeschool our children. Um, As she said at the time, she had taught everybody else's kids, and so she wanted to teach ours now. From our perspective, the great thing about homeschooling is that it gave us control over the curriculum and it allowed us to have a personal investment in our children's learning. But bringing it back to your book, from a signaling perspective, future college uh, administrators or employers, they might not know how to value the education that we've given to our children. So from a signaling perspective, what, what are the implications for homeschooling? Right. Well, the first thing the signaling model says is that even if you know that your homeschooling is superior intellectually to regular schooling, don't assume that it's, you can do it safely and that you won't mess up your kid's future. Right. So I've been interested in homeschooling for a long time, but I want my kids to be able to get good jobs and to enjoy the good things in life. And I don't want to cut off their opportunities before they're even old enough to know what's going on. So even though I was very personally sympathetic to homeschooling, I had a big concern about, like, will the world punish them for my arrogance? Now, I started homeschooling my, my two older sons in middle school. And there I said, okay, that's fine because no one on earth knows what you did in middle school. Right? And so per the signaling model, if no one knows what you did, then you can do what you want. All right? So that's why I didn't have any worry then. But then once there's a question, what about high school? That's when I'll say I got quite nervous 
And I started trying to do some serious research on the question. Now, this is one where if you go and just ask like homeschooling organizations, of course, they're going to say, oh, homeless colleges love homeschoolers. And I say, yeah, well, but of course, that's, of course, you're going to say that. So I don't know. I, I'm just like, that doesn't seem very trustworthy to me. So at least, at least I'm not going to bet my kid's future that homeschooling organizations are completely accurate in their view about the benefits of homeschooling. So instead, I tried to track down you know, neutral, objective researchers who work on this exact question. I did find a few. And their position was that right now, their homeschooling is common enough that the stigma is mild. And you can overcome this mild stigma if you, do so, if you take advantage of homeschooling to do something exceptional. And of course, if you go and do a bunch of tests and other, and other substitute signals that regular high school kids are doing already, but you can do at least those and maybe more. What I wound up doing was uh, just you know, like, like you know, trying to have my kids do things that will make them stand out as being exceptional. So, you know, like my kids started doing AP tests when they were in seventh grade. So those are like the college level tests, usually for advanced high school students. So we just started doing those at a very young age, you know, like, you know, did a lot of test prep uh, for standardized tests. Right. And, but you know, also, of course, a lot of this depends on what your kid wants to do. If your kid wants to be a plumber, then you don't need to worry so much. He doesn't want really, like, then he doesn't need college. In fact, you could just start him with a plumbing apprenticeship when he's 12 years old. Who's going to stop you? <laughs> right. Well, maybe if you're in Virginia, no one. I mean, if you're in other states, maybe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but uh, yeah, so like, you know, very, like homeschooling laws vary a lot by state. Anyway, so I mean, like, I would say that like the, the general view among the researchers that seem most trustworthy to me is that there's, there's likely to be a mild stigma in college admissions against homeschoolers. Um, you can't do homeschooling college. That, that There doesn't seem to be any reward for that. As far as I can tell, that doesn't open doors for you. Uh, but, you know, like basically you can, uh, you, know, you can avoid the hell of uh, K through 12 and then go over to college. And, you know, my kids are a bit depressed because they say, you know, like college will never be as good as what we've had. But I'll say, well, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, like, like, you know, college, there's almost always a way to weasel out of anything unpleasant that you don't want to do. And you can go and take, take the classes that you want to do and that are going to be useful for you in your future. So, you know, like, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, like, and you're not treated like a prisoner. So these are all good things to say about homeschooling. I mean, that said, so, I mean, like, you know, the, there are some homeschoolers who do handicap their kids by especially just not having them learn math, right? So, you know, math is something where most people, it's just not fun at all at first. Maybe it's never fun, but if you don't know it, then you really cut yourself off from a wide range of promising jobs. If you know for sure that you want to be a plumber or a novelist and that's what you're going to do, like then, yeah, you don't need math. But everybody else, I think that math is something you know, like very useful to learn just because of the opportunities that it gives you. And again, it's a lot of opportunities for a fairly modest cost. Whereas say, you know, like learning a foreign language, I'd say it's a very few opportunities for a you know, pretty, pretty substantial cost. So that's why... I, you know, like my, I have, I did have my sons, you know, like, uh, you know, do a, a foreign language AP, but only for college. Like if it weren't for college, I never would have had them do it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, final question. We like to ask our guests at the end, what their favorite movie or TV show related to the topic at hand is. So do you have a favorite movie or TV show about a uh, school? Hmm. That's a great question. Let's see. So 
So first thing that comes off my mind is a song by Charlie XS called "Break the Rules," <laughs> uh, which which is which is fun. Uh, you know, you know, so it says you know, I don't want to go to school. I just want to break the rules. Uh-huh. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know, boys and girls around the world putting on putting on dancing shoes, but that's not responsive. So I won't say that. Right, right. Let's see. So sleeping in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me just think. Let's see, so you know, I'm actually tempted to say "Stand and Deliver." which is a movie about a teacher at a disadvantaged high school who turns his students who can barely do arithmetic into uh, calculus students, right? And what I like about it is it really shows how extreme you would need to reform the system to make it work. I believe that's based on a true story. Yeah, 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 yeah it, it is. You know, so it's symbolizing things, but it's like as far as movies inspired by actual events go, it's pretty accurate. One of the main things that I, or reactions that I get from my book is, sure, schools now are terrible, we can fix them. And when I look at Stand and Deliver, of course, a lot of people would say, yeah, it's a movie saying that we can fix them. And I say, it's also a movie about how you're not going to, because you would have to change the way you do business to a truly dramatic degree. So here's the thing, out of, out of everything I've read, I haven't found any evidence that you can't improve education a lot. In fact, I'd say that all the evidence says that it could be done. It just requires iron will requires a totally different way of looking at the world, right? So, now, by the way, this is actually kind of way that I am. So, like, a lot of the appeal of being a homeschooling parent for me is there's a lot of times where I think, look, I can do what other people can't do, but it's going to take a complete change of heart, right? So, for example, like, you know, like almost no American claims to have successfully learned a foreign language in school. My kids did, right? And, and why? Because I read research and then just paid attention to the world and said, oh, it can be done. Here's how we do it. With complete immersion, you need to have foreign language instruction where you're not allowed to breathe a word of English, where you do it every single day, right? And so that's what I my kids do. And in three semesters, they're able to get a five on Spanish, right? So whereas most people do four or five years and struggle to get a three, right, on the test. So, you know, like, 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 you know, like it really is true that if you were willing to go and be single-minded and with strict discipline, you can do vastly better than standard schools do. But the kind of people that work in standard schools, they just have the complete, you know, they're nice, but they don't have this kind of hardline, no-nonsense attitude that, so that actually does work if your goal is to master bodies of intellectually difficult material. Yeah. And that's really the lesson of Stand and Deliver is if you devote yourself, body and soul, to calculus, spend every spare minute on it, you can go and move from arithmetic to calculus with fairly uh, with, 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 with students that, that seem quite unpromising uh, initially. But that's what it would take. It would take something you – know, it really would take a revolution and uh, in the way that people act and think. And that's just not going to happen. I mean, I, so I remember when I was at back to school night for some of my kids and I had just read an article that was you know, you know, going over experiments on highlighting and learning. So like you take out your, your highlighter and you highlight the text. How much does that improve learning? There's a lot of papers on this saying it doesn't work at all. And then I go to my kid's class and the teacher says, and now make sure that your kids have enough highlighters because we're going to be doing a lot of highlighting. And I'm thinking, if I raise my hand and explain that I've read all these articles on the highlighting, it doesn't work, what are the odds the teacher will change what she does? And I'm like, 
one in a hundred, one in a thousand. There's no way I could persuade this teacher even to stop highlighting. So if that's hopeless, what are the odds that you're going to get foreign language teachers across America to go and do strict immersion teaching where every day the kids are forbidden from speaking anything other than the target language? You know, you you might as well wait for them to sprout wings. All right. Well, on that cheery note, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, totally my pleasure. We don't need no education.